พุทธังธรรมังสังฆังธรรมสัง
being the abbot of a monastery, that's a guaranteed formula for not fitting in because everybody's projecting all sorts of stuff onto you when you're the abbot of a monastery. Even if you do want to be one of the guys, you can't be because everybody's looking up to you, abbot, abbe, father. You're expected to be solving all sorts of problems and being the abbot of a monastery, it's it sometimes it occurs to me that it's like being it's like being the head of a wild animal sanctuary in the Congo where people bring you all these sick animals or orphaned animals that need looking after and some of them are in a terrible state and you you work really, really hard providing them with all their basic needs and and sometimes months, sometimes years, looking after them until they're well again, or relatively well, and then they just take off. And just sometimes just take off. And in the case of being the abbot, they, before they leave, they tell you all the things that are wrong with you, all the things you've got wrong. And certainly in my case, I've got lots of faults, so they don't have any trouble finding things that are wrong with me to point out. So that can be very lonely. So this question of not fitting in and being lonely is something that I am personally very familiar with. However, another reaction that I have when I hear people talking about feeling lonely is what do I really believe as a Buddhist can or should be done about it? Or what what am I doing about it? And so when I think back over my life and how much time I've spent feeling lonely or alone, I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel fortunate because it's a really good motivator. What are you going to do? Are you going to suffer or are you going to do something about it? And what we can do about it is discipline our spiritual faculties. We all have this potential. We all have these potentials, which we've all discussed and thought about many times before faith, energy, mindfulness, collectiveness, discernment, these spiritual potentials. We have our physical faculties, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, which we are very pleased to make use of. However, are we really making good use of our spiritual faculties? Are we developing our spiritual faculties? Faith, really conscious trust, faith in true principles, energy, being able to generate energy when you're about to get pulled into the vortex of feeling sorry for yourself. Can you generate energy and pull yourself up and look at it and feel it and sit there and say, yes, this hurts, but I'm interested in seeing beyond it. Can we do that? Energy, mindfulness, presence, alertness, aliveness in the midst of this ordeal that we call life. Collectedness, the discipline of attention. Are we making effort to really exercise the discipline of attention or are we just kind of, whatever, baby, it's all okay? Discernment. Do we trust in the principle of accuracy of perception and training our faculties to be able to see beyond the way things merely appear to be? Something as mundane as as, as chocolate-covered marzipan can appear so delicious so we should eat the whole plate? Do we follow the way things appear to be, or do we trust the principle of seeing beyond the way things appear to be? Yeah, I really want to eat this whole plate. Or, I really feel so sorry for myself because I'm so misunderstood and so rejected and so unappreciated, and it really feels good just to wallow in it. 
Is that what we do? Or do we really trust in the principle of the possibility of developing our faculties to see beyond the way things appear to be? So I do personally trust that there is something we can do about it and we're particularly fortunate that we have a spiritual teaching that doesn't just give us a set of ideas to believe in and provide us with hope for the future, rather it equips us with skills for training our faculties so as to be able to meet what's happening here and now and get interested in life, in the joy, to be able to enjoy the joy, hopefully without getting lost in it, so that when the sorrow comes along, Hopefully we don't have to get lost in the sorrow. Hmm. Now the Buddha, Buddha gave many teachings and so many teachings that it's not difficult to turn the Buddha's teachings into something very complex and difficult to understand. However, he did also make his teachings very easy to relate to and very simple. Like, for instance, where he said, it's through not knowing two things that you stay lost in this very sad circumstance. It's not knowing dukkha and not knowing the cause of dukkha. Not knowing dukkha, not knowing the cause of dukkha. We've all heard this many, many times, and, and maybe some of you have heard it so many times, you're already thinking, oh, spare me, we don't have to have another talk on dukkha. It's so, so depressing. We've heard it all before. Have we really, have we really heard what the Buddha was talking about? He said it's through not knowing two things, that's all. It's just not knowing two things that we stay stuck in this really sad circumstance. Not knowing the the many thousands of things. Not knowing two things. Have we really heard it? Or do we merely think we've heard it? which is really quite likely. Again, the way we're educated, the way we're brought up, we're very normal to be identified in our thinking mind. And as what a wonderful resource the thinking mind can be, also if we're identified as the thinking mind, we can very easily lose touch with other aspects of our intelligence, the heart's intelligence, the gut's intelligence, the discriminative intelligence that we have access to in our heads, it can be a valuable resource, yes. However, it can also tear us apart, always discriminating, always comparing and judging what's going on outside and what's going on inside. Are we really able to investigate dukkha, as the Buddha was encouraging us to do, really investigate it while we're just up in our heads thinking? And what is this word dukkha anyway? What is it? It's rendered in different ways. If you translate it as suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress. The rendering in English that I'm rather keen on is inherent limitation. And I like to think of dukkha as inherent limitation. All conditioned phenomena are inherently limited. Everything that's conditioned, that's that's compounded, is in a state of flux. If it's born, it's going to die. It's changing. It's unstable. 
And as such, if we try to hold on to it, anything, physical, mental, emotional, we try to hang on to something that's in a state of flux, we're going to be disappointed. We try to make a feeling ultimate, like some positive, hopeful feeling about the future, which may be very uplifting and inspiring. If we try to make it ultimate, then we very easily get very disappointed. I mean, this time last year, there probably a lot of people around the planet were really hopeful about 2022. It's going to be a great year. <laughs> well, I clearly would have been very disappointed. A very extremely difficult year. Hope can be very enticing, generate very positive feelings and very attractive. However, if we hold on to it and somehow expect it to be an ultimate source of security, or even a serious source of security, we hold on to it, we spoil it. All compounded phenomena are in a state of change, of flux. And so if we cling to them, when they're inherently limited, then we create a feeling of I am limited, of struggle, of stress. And however, that's not, that's not happening to us. We, we can in this sad and sorry world of ours, sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that suffering is happening to us. We're not surrounded by the company that we like, or we don't have the weather that we like, or circumstances that we find agreeable. It's not difficult to have an opinion about how it should be otherwise. And what are we doing there? We are resisting what is. We're resisting reality. If it's an equanimous perspective of just stepping back and from a perspective of of open-hearted feeling here and now awareness, saying, oh, it's like this, well, then we're not necessarily going to be experiencing stress and struggle. However, when we do feel ourselves pulled into stress and struggle, if we're really hearing what the Buddha said about seeing dukkha and seeing the cause of dukkha, then we get interested in it and say, what are we doing in this moment, here and now? What is this experience? What actually is this experience of struggle? So I'm not surrounded by friends who understand me or get me or like me or appreciate me. Does that have to be a problem? It's painful, but does it have to be a problem? If the heart of awareness does not collapse around that sensation, around that perception of aloneness, does it have to be a problem? The feeling of aloneness, that's just a fact. Somewhere along the line of my own experience of reflecting on loneliness, the pain of loneliness, I'm not sure it was a conscious strategy, but one way or another, I, I, I turned around and embraced it. I decided this is, this is something to embrace. And so for many, many years now, I start the day, I get up, I bow in front of my shrine and and make this determination. I was born alone with my kamma. I would die alone with my kamma. While I live, now I come to realize the radiant heart of loving kindness, the way of Lord Buddha, Lord Dhamma, Lord Sangha. Every day, start the day. I was born alone with my kamma. And then 
at the end of my bed there's a little A4 poster which which says I will die alone and that's not because I must give myself a hard time rather it's because that part of my being which is preoccupied with the feeling of of loneliness needs to be brought into awareness it needs to be felt, it needs to be examined what really is that that feels alone getting interested in that so embracing the feeling rather than turning away from it welcoming it in my reception room in my cottage, there's a nice, a nice little wooden box that a, a local craftsman made and was sponsored by some good friends and supporters of the monastery. And it's, it was destined for my ashes when I die. I hope it's big enough for them. I was explaining to one of the young monks here, you know, it's that box there. It's got, it's got nightlights in it at the moment, but that's for my ashes. And, and he was, oh, it's good to know about that. He said, no. Having reminders rather than turning away from it, what does that do? Well, it counters the tendency we have to avoid it. Everything is in a state of flux. If we resist the flux, if we resist the change, it's like it's like if you're riding a bicycle and you you put your foot down on the ground, you've got to be prepared for some friction. You're moving and you get resistance and that's what happens when we cling to life, when we cling to experience. So this experience, this perception of loneliness or not fitting in, it's not just an interesting idea, it's a painful reality, it's a whole body-mind painful reality. Can we prepare, can we develop our spiritual faculties? faith, energy, mindfulness, collectiveness, discernment, to a degree whereby we're able to actually meet this experience. Now, that's, uh, that's not supposed to sound like a challenge and it's not supposed to sound like a formula that we can suddenly just kind of apply this formula, this technique, and then, boop, we sort out our pain of loneliness because what happens when we start to face directly, meet, such dukkha as loneliness, quite often we encounter a backlog. So we might hear this argument and be reasonably inspired by it, so I'm going to try that, and so we apply ourselves to it, and then kapow, we we get overwhelmed. Oh, that didn't work, that technique didn't work, I thought that was a good idea, clearly it wasn't. Well, Let's not be so quick as to dismiss the argument. Recognizing the degree to which we've denied life, denied dukkha. Not just this lifetime, but presumably previous lifetimes as well. And the momentum of denied dukkha means that when we turn towards it and we look at it, we have to exercise a great deal of skill, of gentleness, patience, of agility, not just hours, sometimes weeks, months, years, maybe decades, before some of that momentum of denial has been assuaged to a degree whereby we find ourselves in a moment where we can meet it, and we're not overwhelmed by it, and we do see that it works, that 
instead of turning away from it, we look at it, we feel it, not just thinking about it in our heads. Clinging is not a mere concept. You know, the concept of clinging to experience creates suffering. That's something that, yes, you can write a nice thesis about at university. And however, relating to the idea of clinging and expecting that to resolve our suffering is it's like it's like you've got a nice fancy recipe book and you pull the pages out and you eat them. I mean, how stupid is that? That's the wrong relationship to have to the recipes. The, the theory about practice, the concept about practice, that's like as the Buddha said, it's just pointing in a certain direction. The concept of clinging is an interesting concept and yes, it approximates a dynamic, a reality that takes takes place. It's pointing to a reality. But that reality is felt in our hearts. We don't feel things in our brains. We imagine things in our brains and we feel them in our heart. We feel them in our guts. So coming down out of the attic, as I've been saying recently, into the living room, into the basement and feeling what we feel, being there for it, really meeting it. And if we've had the agility and the patience to burn through any unfortunate accumulation of a backlog of denied life and they were able to meet it then perhaps we have the good fortune of seeing that letting go happens that's the trick to prepare our faculties so as we're present enough in the moment when something arises that's painful and disagreeable and instead of the heart collapsing instead of awareness collapsing and I become obstructed, and I become limited, that we remain open in feeling awareness, and watch it, feel it, allow it, until it falls away. So that kind of seeing is very different from intellectual understanding. It's a seeing that really makes a difference. And if you've already had such moments of seeing, then you already have the kind of faith that sustains you when you encounter the real difficulties of life. If you haven't, if you're still on the, the pariyati level of practice, which is learning about Dhamma, well then you have a certain level of faith, and, and hopefully before too long you'll learn to bring that faith down into the rest of your body, into your heart, into your stomach, and, and feel what you feel. So that when there's an experience like, for instance, you really want, you really want to be understood by somebody. You really want to be appreciated by somebody. And you're getting lost in that feeling of wanting to be understood to the degree whereby you're afraid that you're going to be misunderstood. And there's that terrible tension happens. If you're practicing in that moment and you're there for it you get interested in it and you look at it then you see in a way whereby you see that these things go together these forces these dynamics condition each other if we get lost in wanting to be understood and appreciated then we generate the fear of not being understood and appreciated And that hurts. It takes a lot of energy. And, and I suspect for a lot of people, this, this dynamic, this state of tension is 
been going on for most of their life and has become unconscious and is consuming most of their energy. And that's why they find life so exhausting and so disappointing. However, if we engage this practice and this manner, then we don't have to shy away from the pain of loneliness. We don't have to shy away from the pain of, for instance, fear of failure. Where does that come from? If you're afraid of failing at something, at life, at anything, where does that come from? Well, you look at the other side of fear of something as probably being lost in desire for something. The fear of failure is conditioned by the desire for success. Just thinking about it might give us a little bit of a handle on it, an introduction to the possibility of being freed from it. However, then we need to bring our feeling awareness down into our hearts and in the moment of wanting to be successful, can we see that, can we feel that, can we read that in our chests, in our belly, in our shoulders, can we feel that tension of getting lost and wanting to be successful and sense how it conditions the fear of failure. See how they go together. And realize that you've got to let go. You're going to have to let go of the desire for success if you want to be free from the fear of failure. And then up comes the fear, well, if I let go of desiring to be successful, maybe I'll never be successful. Well, maybe that's just a con. Maybe we've got to stop living life on strategies, but rather live life and trusting in true principles and that's a very different approach to life so here we are at the end of 2022 and shortly the beginning of 2023 and if you're somebody of an optimistic persuasion you might be very hopeful about 2023 and be resolved to hold firmly to the vision, the image that, that all the wars, not just the war in Ukraine, there are plenty of other ghastly wars going on on the planet, and all the wars are going to cease and, and, and the, the, the killing of animals and the cutting down of forests and the polluting of the oceans and and the atmosphere and, and is all going to cease and people are going to see the folly of their ways and there's going to be a new awakening and we're going to learn from all the suffering that we've had to endure clinging to this hope and a good feeling can come from that a really good feeling can come from that however as I was saying earlier this time last year there's probably think, people thinking just the same thought and, and maybe ended up feeling very disillusioned. There's a, a great danger in clinging to hope. Or maybe if you're of a pessimistic persuasion, which there's a lot of such people around who looking at the world think, well, the whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket right now. I don't know how much longer we've got left. Look at it. And, yeah. Military-industrial complex is making loads of money and kind of trashing the planet and the forests are disappearing at an enormous rate and the oceans are seriously polluted and there's no hope. 
That's the pessimistic perspective. However, we all are aware of the other possibility, thank goodness, which is the middle way, which is that perspective of disciplined attention, which can see the mind tending to delight and hopefulness, but not get lost in it. See the mind tending to get lost in pessimism, but not get lost in it. It is. There are good reasons to be hopeful. I think there's good reasons to be hopeful. Human beings are amazingly creative and adaptable. There could be all sorts of great discoveries, like free energy for everybody. I don't think it's impossible. It could happen and it could change the whole global economy. But there is also, I think, great capacity for terrible things to happen. So let's not be naive about it. And this is the this is the good fortune of the, the middle way, that, that we can go for refuge to that perspective. We can invest in that perspective. That's what we can do, not just following naive, hopeful fantasies of the future, or naive, pessimistic fantasies of the future. Rather, as the Buddha encouraged us in the in the Mahamangala Sutta, the discourse on the greatest blessings, that the second stanza is a line there where the Buddha says, Atta Samapaniti Cha Etang Mangalamutama. Oneself rightly aligned. This is the greatest blessing. Rightly aligned means not aligned and lost in the stories created by the deluded sense of self rather aligned with true principles. And that is something that we can afford to aspire for. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Maya,